Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So, Dhammatavaga, judgment and wisdom. So, in the Dhamma, how do we develop wisdom? How do we develop judgment? Well, the Buddha handed us down something called the Eightfold Path. And the way to develop the Eightfold Path, to develop wisdom and proper judgment is through right discernment. We also call it right view. So let's just get right into this. Judging mindlessly does not define a judge. The wise one knows both right judgment and wrong. The wise judge others impartially, mindfully, and consistent with the Dhamma. The wise guard the Dhamma and are guarded by the Dhamma. So this right view or right discernment is the way the Buddha taught us to look at things, to look at our lives, to look at ourselves in relation to the world. So what is right view? What is right discernment? Well, it's knowledge with regard to stress, knowledge with regard to the origination of stress, knowledge with regard to the cessation of stress, and knowledge of the practice leading to the cessation of stress, the Eightfold Path. So when we're on the path, the Eightfold Path, we can clearly discern right from wrong in our thoughts, words, and actions. So judgment here is not a call to find fault in others. It's not being suspicious of others. It's not judging ourselves harshly. It's just those things, knowledge with regard to stress and our contribution to it, knowledge with regard to the origination of that stress, meaning our contribution to it, knowledge of the cessation of stress, how that ends, and knowledge of the practice leading to that cessation, the Eightfold Path. Established in right view, intelligent, this one can be called a judge. Simply talking does not define wisdom. Secure in knowledge, free of fear and aversion, this one can be called wise. Simply talking does not maintain the Dhamma. Hearing little but integrating heartwood, one is mindful of the Dhamma. 
and they are one who maintains the Dhamma. So, simply talking often does not define the Dhamma. No, we know that we've heard lots of great speakers in our lives expounding one thing or another. Outside of that, they don't have Dhamma. They don't have right view. They don't have right action. They don't have um, an upright life developed framed by the Eightfold Path. So nice words are, are, are nice words. It's not something that can be practiced or developed. So what is uh, this, this line about hearing little but integrating heartwood is one mindful of the Dhamma. So if we think about that, when we're out in the world, your consciousness is a flame. We're getting all kinds of things coming in at us from our senses, from our ears, from our eyes, from everything that we're hearing and seeing. Are we going to take all of that in? Do we have to? No. So what are the things that, that make up this? Um, you know, when we hear simply talking often does not define wisdom, wisdom rather, simply talking often does not maintain the Dhamma. We think of speech. We think of what we're talking about. We think of what we're saying to other people. We think about what we're saying to ourselves. So what is right speech? Right speech is abstaining from lying, abstaining from abusive speech, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from idle chatter. So these things are all, when we want to develop right discernment, when we want to develop judgment and wisdom through the Eightfold Path, we have to practice in this way. We have to be able to discern whether what we're saying to ourselves about what we're thinking is wrong speech, abusive speech. When we're listening to what we're saying to, when we're listening to what we're saying to other people, can we discern whether we're lying, whether we're, it's just idle chatter, whether it's gossip, all of these things are, are a part of what happens when we develop the Eightfold Path as we start taking responsibility for our lives as it occurs. Hearing little but integrating heartwood is one mindful of the Dhamma, and they are one who maintains the Dhamma. So the heartwood, again, is the Eightfold Path. Everything that we're that we're seeing in this sutta is orienting us towards the practice and development of the Eightfold Path. Gray hair does not define an elder or a teacher. Advanced in years, lacking heartwood, one remains foolish. One who knows the Four Noble Truths, mindful of restraint, of good character, gentle, in control of thoughts, words, and deeds, the defilements vanquished, awakened, 
this one can be called an elder and a teacher of those fit to be taught. So this is this is having us look and the next the next couple lines too. This is having us look at appearances. And again, eye consciousness is a flame. We're we're constantly being organized and oriented towards what we're taking in, what we're seeing, what we're what is the appearance of this person? Oh, they're a good person because they have a uh, you know, an American flag pin on their shirt. They're a good person because they um, have the jersey of the team that I root for. So all of these things are, are appearances. Surface. Can we discern what is real, true about this person by simply what we see on the outside? Not by sophisticated rhetoric or the donning of colored robes does an envious and miserly imposter become a sage at peace. Only one who has uprooted arrogance and hatred, abandoned ignorance and developed wisdom can one be called a sage at peace. So this is, this is referring to a whole quality of countenance that is developed through behavior through the practice and development of the Eightfold Path, not just what's out on the, not just the shine and the, the shiny lights, but actual substance developed by understanding Four Noble Truths in the Eightfold Path. And, and you, can, you can tell that. You can tell that when you see someone, when you look at someone. You have discernment. You're able to, to, maybe not all the time, because, hey, we're not perfect here. But you can tell. You can tell when someone's calm. You can tell when someone's gentle and at peace. You can tell when someone's agitated. A shaven head does not equal concentration. Dismissing the heartwood consumed by greed, there is no concentration. One who abandons greed, aversion, and deluded thinking through non-distraction, established in jhana moment by moment, this one can be called well-concentrated, a true contemplative. One who abandons greed, aversion, and deluded thinking through non-distraction, established in jhana moment by moment, this one can be called well-concentrated, a true contemplative. So again, there, there's, there's a quality of mind that's developed through this practice. There's a quality of presence that's developed through this practice. There, there's a quality of mind developed when one abandons greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. When one abandons greed, aversion, and deluded thinking through non-distraction, <laughs> their thoughts change, their speech changes, their actions change. 
their relationship to themselves and their community and the world changes. They're not trying to change the world. They're changing themselves by letting go of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Those unskillful mental qualities that have arisen and have yet to arise. So again, boom, right back into the Eightfold Path, right back into right effort, right mindfulness, right meditation. Through non-distraction established in jhana, moment by moment. Seeking alms, donning robes, mindless rituals does not define a sincere Dhamma practitioner. So again, appearances and think of, imagine the Buddha talking to his Sangha 2,600 years ago, he's getting all kinds of people coming in. People who have given up the householder life and are coming to be monk monastics. And he's telling them, this isn't just about these cool clothes that you get, this cool uniform that you get, and this nice bowl that is handmade, and you know this free haircut we give you. This isn't about that. This isn't just about appearances. This is this is um, those things don't define the sincere Dhamma practitioner. Only those that abandon both gaining merit and the three defilements, living always with restraint, with wisdom, this one abides. This one can be called the Dhamma practitioner. So if you think that you're going to appear better because you got a freak haircut, you got a cool uniform, and you got your bowl, You'll never, you never understand your contribution to your stress. Only those that abandon both gaining merit and the three defilements, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking, living always with restraint, that's what the Eightfold Path provides, provides that, that limiting factor that John always talks about, that restraint with wisdom, this one abides. This one can be called a Dhamma practitioner. I declare it is not by silence does the confused and deluded, the ignorant, become a sage at peace. You got your free haircut, you got your cool uniform, you got your bowl. Now go sit in the root of a tree or an empty hut. Is that it? Is that all that there is to this? to develop a calm and peaceful mind, just sitting quietly somewhere? No, no. So the Buddha's, the Buddha's talking and teaching his, his monastics, his monks and nuns, that this isn't, this isn't just for show. What he's doing and has done and what the disciples have done isn't just for show. It's, it's a real dedicated practice.
John's words. Rather than encourage the pain of asceticism and aversion, the Buddha taught that wisdom is developed by practicing wise restraint at the sixth sense base. He certainly did not teach to develop and practice aversion and avoid developing refined mindfulness. So sitting quietly somewhere is not the same thing as practicing wise restraint at the sixth sense base. It's not the same thing as that. Because you're in the world. Yeah. It's not just coming in. Yeah. And you can't do it if it's legislative <coughs> forced on you, like a, a 10 day silent retreat. It's something that's forced on you. It's common during the Buddhist time, it's common during our time. It's not helpful because there's no opportunity to recognize contact at the sixth sense yeah. space. But the wise one, able to discern the ordinary from the excellent, <coughs> rejects what is evil and becomes a sage at peace. Those who are able to discern both sides of the world, the foolish and the heartwood, can be called a sage at peace. So this is that... <coughs> The wise one, able to discern the ordinary from the excellent, rejects what is evil and becomes a sage of peace. So this is this preference, our preferences for always getting what we want, never getting what we don't want. That compulsion for our preferences of always getting what we want and never getting what we don't want <clears throat> keeps us distracted and ignores the law of impermanence. If we're always trying to get what we want and never get what we don't want, we're ignoring that whatever we get, whatever we want and whatever we don't want are both impermanent. Ignorance of impermanence leads to endless craving. It's never enough. It's never enough. Always getting what I want's never enough. Never getting what I don't want's never enough. The three marks of existence apply to all phenomena. Disentanglement with personal preference leads to release of a personal view. Release of a personal view leads to right view. Right discernment. Right discernment leads to cessation of self-inflicted stress. Because what was right discernment, remember? Knowledge of stress, knowledge of the origination of stress, our contribution, knowledge of cessation of stress, and knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of stress. Remaining harmless to all living beings, <clears throat> excuse me, remaining harmless to all living things, one becomes noble. Remaining gentle to all living things, one becomes noble. Friends, don't be fooled by your practices or habits, by your sophisticated rhetoric, 
by your meditative superiority or a quiet dwelling. Friends, don't be fooled by the thought that you teach those that don't know. When you are complacent, where greed, aversion, and delusion continue, here is where the heartwood is forgotten. The Buddha, having developed the wisdom to judge appropriately consistently, John's words, the Buddha, having developed the wisdom to judge appropriately, consistently encourages Dhamma practitioners to avoid the common adaptations, accommodations, and embellishments to his Dhamma and remain focused on the heartwood, the Eightfold Path. <clears throat> so that, again, friends, don't be fooled by the thought that you teach those that don't know. When you are complacent, where greed, aversion, and delusion continue, here is where the heartwood is forgotten. It's the end of the sutta. So those things seem to be, those last points seem to be extremely important in developing the Eightfold Path. Remaining gentle, remaining harmless, no complacency, which just refers to right effort. What you put into this practice, you will you will get out of this practice in the measure of calm. What you get, what you what you put into this practice of jhana meditation, you will get out of your practice of jhana meditation in the way of stability of mind. So let's go around the room and hear from everybody. Jeff, how are you, sir? Well, thank you. Um, thanks, that was well taught. Um, yes, it, it kind of only makes sense, doesn't it? it if you're making judgments without right view, you can only continue with delusional thinking. It's not really judgment in any kind of a sense other than a continuation of your own eye making. Exactly. The, 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 the thought of complacent uh, That doesn't necessarily mean one would have to be isolated from those things. Simply, I, I take that to mean that being complacent would be, what's the word I'm looking for, would, would be tolerant of, in the sense that you would accept that as appropriate behavior. Is that correct? Yes, and it also, I'd say, refers to the, the hindrances. Ill will, doubt, worry, you know, all of those things that, that come up that get in the way of developing this practice. Also, it also points to where 
we feel like the Dhamma is too difficult to practice, such as maybe a work environment or a relationship. So we're good on our cushion twice a day and we're good at class twice a week. But with that particular customer, no, that's, I can't practice the Dhamma there with that particular person. Mm-hmm. And so we're complacent. We're not, we're not introducing it into the most difficult areas of our lives, which is where Dukkha mostly arises, doesn't it? I interrupted. No, no, just to continue that, it's complacent, not staying focused on the formal truths, and to wander looking for something else and tweaking it and embellishing it and leaving a little bit out. That's complacency. So that's that mindfulness and concentration. So that hard. Yeah. We relate to that. It's a place of good emphasis. God, I'm sorry. It's a guard the Dhamma and guards, you know, there's a lot about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Once we have understood and undertaken this practice, understand formal truths, we don't judge ourselves harshly and we don't judge others harshly. That's sort of the root to guide those who are in that. Yeah, that, that, you know, guarding the Dhamma by, by practicing it, by taking the Eightfold Path. Knowing what it is and what it isn't. But yeah. keeping it limited, you, you emphasize that hearing little but mindful of the heart with, I think that's the most important line in this really great sutra. Mm-hmm. And it points to being mindful of the limiting factor of the Eightfold Path. This is it. This is our practice. This keeping this path. I think I said Saturday. Um, these last eight or nine chapters, Buddha is really placing an emphasis on the importance of sticking to the Dhamma. Don't get distracted by other things. We hear little, meaning I don't need to hear all the so-called spiritual, religious, new agey ideas out there. I, I limit it to this. I'm mindful of the heart of the Dhamma, the whole path. And that also points to complacency. Complacency, laziness, another word for it would lead me to find other things that aren't sort of challenging as the Dhamma, which really isn't challenging at all, is it? It's just asking us to change our mind. Yeah. And in that sense, the only judgment that matters is the judgment, is this within the Dhamma or not? Yes. And specifically when you're judging yourself, mm-hmm. am, am I, you know, what I'm doing now internally or externally, is this within the Dhamma or not? Yes. Is it yeah. within the Eightfold Path? That's the only judgment that matters. Yeah. Yeah. And that does roll back to being gentle with yourself, but staying within these guardrails. Yeah. That's what we were just talking about when he said being gentle with yourself. Don't cause suffering by going outside of it. It's. I'm just struck by the great compassion of the Buddha to establish guardrails for right you know it's like (laughs) (laughs) from his own own search for understanding he understood how important because he those six years that he was wandering around northern India and southern Nepal he he grasped after every teaching every dharma that was out there, everybody that came through, remember he was in Savakri, which was on that uh, that trade route, so all the 
famous teachers came through there. And he learned from every one of them. This story about Alara Kalama and Tekarama Futa, how he went to be, he quickly learned their, their teachings so much so that they wanted him to be, become a representative to join them and teach their dharma. He said, no, it doesn't lead to the truth. He had complete respect for these teachers, but it wasn't what he was looking for. And what they were teaching was what most teachers, is, it's about cosmic things and you know universal consciousness and all this stuff that was just a distraction for the Buddha. He limited his teaching to what a human being could actually learn and experience, period, nothing else. He didn't teach anything that a human being couldn't develop in this lifetime, meaning right now. And again, hearing little but mindful of the heart. How was that for a long answer, Jeff? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Can you guys hear us okay? The, whoever spoke last, it was difficult to hear. Zach, all right. He was kind of whispering. Can you turn the volume up on your computer? Yeah, sorry, that's fine. <clears throat> Brian, how are you, my friend? I'm well. That was excellent. I'm trying to formulate a response to that. I might be skillfully coming up short. Um, but well, the, there's the, always noble silence. There, there's something there, though, around the the phenomena contacting the senses. There's there's virtually an, an infinite number of phenomena contacting the senses at any given point in time. And spending time and energy trying to judge that or discern that is fruitless. It really just comes back to being skillful around that contact. And is that contact helpful or hurtful? And again, the, the whole path is, is just limiting in that nature that you don't have to have all these extravagant rabbit holes around all of that contact. It's just unnecessary. Um, and it really, you know, coming coming from Ram's teaching this past Saturday, it goes back to that being an island to yourself, um, which really came through for me in this one as well. So right. thank you, Matt. It's good seeing you. Love hearing your teachings as always. Thanks, Deborah. Jeff, is your lovely wife nearby? Uh, no, she's not here this evening. Well, well, we miss her. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, I mean, that's that's that thing of, of, of you know, on, upon contact, all conditioned things that arise are subject to cessation. That's it. We don't need to wade around in it. Thank you, brother. Ron. Well, I don't have much to say anymore, but 
I can say it a bit more slowly. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Kevin. Teacher Kevin. Glad you're here. Enjoy. I was listening to teaching. It helped me a lot because when I was reading this by myself, I got really tripped up on hearing little. But reading that by myself, I was like, wait a minute. I thought the whole idea was that we were trying to be more in touch with ourselves and really noting, or at least conscious of, what was going on in there, arising and passing those thoughts and feelings. Um, I had a question. Mm. There was a line somewhere in the sutta. I don't, I didn't write down the first half, but the second half part was about uh, students or somebody fit to be taught. And I was just curious. Mm. It almost sounded like the Buddha saying that there are some people who aren't fit to be taught. And that didn't, I don't know, I think I'm hearing this in an interesting way. And I wanted to hear. Mm. Yeah. So that, that line is. Um, Gray hair does not define an elder or a teacher. Advanced in years, lacking heartwood, one remains foolish. One who knows the Four Noble Truths, mindful of restraint, of good character, gentle in control of thoughts, words, and deeds, the defilements vanquished, awakened, this one can be called an elder and a teacher of those fit to be taught. So. The Buddha always said, "For the, my Dhamma is for those with a speck of dust in their eye, just a speck of dust in their eye, that this may be able to remove that speck of dust to see clearly what this teaching is about, which is understanding stress. Um, so is your question kind of, what is an example of someone unfit to be taught? It, I mean, by saying, yeah, is, if someone is fit to be taught, are there people who are unfit to be taught? Mm -hmm. In that way, yeah. I mean, <laughs> some some who would have just a speck of dust, others would have, you know, <laughs> a boulder. And the dust in this would be, you know, um, how would we say it? We'd say it like, uh, yeah, ignorance. You know? The context for this might be found in the Sutta, where the Buddha describes his own awakening. And then the, the struggle he first had was just simply changing his mind to another, to another view. And that book implies discernment, right view. And he finally got to that point where he was able to change his own mind. And then he thought, after his awakening, sat in meditation off and on for a couple of weeks considering is it worthwhile getting up off his meditation cushion and go teach others what he had discovered and at first he thought to himself that it would be too difficult and he didn't want to spend the rest of his day doing something that would be difficult for him but then in more consideration he realized that there are other people that are fit to be taught that, that are willing to change their mind and actually willing to engage in but he also understood the nature of ignorance and how powerful that is in, in the human mind. And this is 2,600 years ago. What's remarkable about that is 
still true today, isn't it? But he decided if there were just a few people with a speck of dust in their eyes, it was worthwhile getting up and teaching. And that's when he started his teaching career. So it's not like uh, an arrogant, like, oh, you're not fit to be taught. I don't, I don't approve of you. It's that there will be many people who come to this and just they're simply not, let's say, fit to be taught, fit to be taught. <laughs> In, in a very accepting and gentle way. Okay. It's, and we see here, I, I, I say it often, if everybody that came through this room and expressed a deep interest in what we were doing kept coming, we'd be holding classes in Madison Square Garden. But, and again, it's not to, not to denigrate anybody who doesn't continue with practice. It just means it wasn't fit for that. Yeah. And you can come to this for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. Do you want another certification, you know, uh, if that's happened, that's happened. Um, if trying to fix all your problems, mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to fix your family's problems, fix a broken cell, you know, uh, if you, uh, you come here because you think it's a great tool for, for your, um, your counseling practice, uh, you know, all these are, you know, maybe you can do that, but that's not going to be this is not going to lead you to your awakening. Yeah. You made that point. This is for people that A, are willing to put in the right effort. That's a, that's a big thing. Uh, and, and in the end, you know, it's right you. you know. And right and, and being there for the right reason is part of right you. I think it's for people who want to develop the understanding of the For those who have right view, yeah. which means for those who have their also people who have wrong view. And Matt sort of said, you know, what you're willing to put into this practice is also what you're willing to give up for this practice. And the hold of wrong views and the hold of big views really is so strong that most, in fact, most people are not willing to give that up. They're, they're just look at this room, look around the world. This is not that common, you know, to continue to do this, to to have the humility and to understand that my lack of understanding is why I am stressed, why I suffer, why why this is life is hard, where to have it be a little more easy and even keel, to have calm, you've got to be willing to let go of the hold on something through this world has been Chastised into us, it's, it's, it's impossible to break free of without some guidance from someone like the Buddha and some being supported too. And that goes to like the that little riddle of you have to have some level of right view at the beginning of your practice. Mm -hmm. It's like rough, like understanding that this is something's not right. Yeah, this is not working. You know, and then it develops it as a goal, as a ultimate like landing spot of a right view. So that's that fit to be taught. Yeah, yeah. You have to be open to it. Yeah, exactly. And so if if I'm if I come in and say, well, I don't, I already know everything, then I'm not fit to be taught because I'm not willing to give up something in order to 
have a common peaceful mind. Or change the world, that I'll change my mind. Of right. Change my mind and then engage the way I, view, I look at the world, right? Yeah. Engage Buddhism is one of the major distractions today. And it really is based on people saying, okay, I'm going I'm to bring, I'm going to end all the difficulties in the world and then I can get down to practice. And of course, it doesn't work that way. But there's a lot of resistance comes up in many ways, but the, the subtle aspect of this idea of not being fit or being fit is the belief in salvation or in some kind of magical or mystical experience, whether it's in this lifetime or another lifetime. And if you cling to those, which I see often, you won't, you yourself will classify yourself as someone not fit to be tied simply because you can't change your views from that very distracted view, a wrong view to this view. And, you know, the other thing is that the Buddha taught, and it doesn't, he taught us to be human beings, and most people don't want to be human beings because they've used the word, I use the word a lot, self-loathing. They just don't think that they're good enough to just be a human being. They have to be something else where they have to be better than their neighbor or whatever it might be. You know, that sets up a competition between us and everybody else then. And that person will never be fit to be. They want to be tied. Simply because, again, it sounds, I don't mean it in a hurtful way, but it simply means that ego is too big. And the Buddha recognized that. It's just... I think he, for himself, and the lesson for us, too, as teachers and students, is some people just don't want it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean they're less of a human being. You know, I don't know. For me, I, I'm, I think the most fortunate thing in my life is that I found the Dhamma. And that I somehow, I don't think I have any kind of special brain, but somehow I could understand it well enough to restore it start teaching it to others. Uh, again, I don't think I'm anything special because of that. But what it's made me is a human being. Mm-hmm. But I also notice that there's other human beings that don't want to do this. That doesn't mean anything to me at all. It just means they, they choose to live a different life. In other words, I don't need to, to denigrate anybody because they don't think that what I'm... I mean, I get, I get hate mail, but as wonderful as I am, I get people that send me emails saying, well, what the hell are you doing? You can't teach this. <laughs> and, you know, I, I usually send a nice email back saying, rest in peace or something. <laughs> You're not fit to be tied. <laughs> um, and again, it, it also points to how, to me, how fortunate we are to have this sangha we have, to have this dhamma that's still here, and it still works for us. My mind was never calm. I always wanted it. Even as a little kid, I remember just being so frustrated because I didn't understand. And now I understand. That's enough. And I think it, I think we're all seeing that. Understanding those four things that Matt pointed out is the secret to happiness and peace and calm. And I would say a rich and really rewarding life that's based on right here, right now. Not what I've acquired, not what I might become, not what people think of me. But based on it, what did you use such a great word? The quality of my countenance. <laughs> <laughs>
take responsibility for our lives as it occurs requires right discernment, right view. Because if we don't have right view, then we don't know what we're doing. We're, what, we're, what we're doing at that point is just reacting constantly to blaming everybody in the world and finding fault, all, whatever. Yeah. Tribalism. Yeah. You know, and at the very least, reacting constantly to consciousness of the eye, consciousness of the ear, consciousness of the nose, consciousness of the tongue, consciousness of the intellect. So we're, there's no restraint at the sixth sense space. If there's no restraint at the sixth sense space, we're gone. And we're definitely not trying to take responsibility for our lives. Thank you. Mary? Thank you, Mary. Thank you. And, um, yeah, Julia, thanks for bringing that up. And John, too, about the, what stuck out to me was when Matt was talking about hearing little mindful of the eightfold taxes, like you do, and I was just like, what? Isn't it the opposite? And it's weird how, conversely, when we hear little, it doesn't mean ignoring people or you know, creating our own idea or whatever of what they're saying, but conversely, you can actually zoom in kind of on what's, what's important and have a greater sense of concentration and kind of understand that person, whoever you're talking to, better. You know, you don't have that, like, internal chatter. So often when we're talking to people and they're, or they're saying something to us, like we formulate our own 
ideas of what they're saying and we can't you know, repeat back because if we were asked to like repeat back what did they just say, we would just be unable to do it unless we were really listening to them. But hearing a little, I guess maybe you could comment on that, like when you're in your interpersonal relationships, it doesn't mean just filtering people out necessarily or ignoring people, but maybe just the distractions of like internal chatter or ideas yeah, I mean, mostly it's it's our perception is in the way of whatever of whatever is being said, of whatever is being what whatever we're hearing. Our perception about that is in the way, and so then we don't really we're we're attached to our perception of what's being said rather than than just hearing what's being said so again that that's that's how just automatic self-referential view is established immediately where i can't even hear what you're saying i can only hear what i'm thinking about what you're saying you know and so that's when that's that's how automatic it is it just Bam. And so when we develop concentration through jhana practice and we develop calm and we develop stability in, in our mind, that habitual perception aggregate is not employed isn't leading i should say so, yeah thank you great class everybody really good to see all of you here And we'll finish as we always do with Meta. Anybody want to chime in on anything? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so relating to what Laura just said, it's just uh, hearing little. The, the Buddha was was involved in the world in a very direct way, but he never taught say it often. We're not trying to exclude anybody, but if you come here to learn the Dhamma, this is what it is. In the beginning, when we first started teaching in the building right next door, um, and then down the street, for the first few years, almost every class, somebody brought something else to class. I heard this teacher say this, or I heard this. 
let's, let's listen to this poem by someone. And we never did any of that because we teach just this with the Buddha taught. We don't, we, we hear a little, we keep it well focused because it's the only way that the Dhamma can work. You know, the, the Dhamma doesn't, um, the Dhamma is, has lasted 2,600 years, but it can be easily corrupted if we don't stay focused on just this. Hearing little, but mindful of the heart. So in that situation, what am I bringing in? I'm bringing my right view into this situation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that we don't talk to people or that don't practice the Dhamma. We talk to a lot of people, but we get learn how to bring the Dhamma into it. Now that, you know, since I'm going on, it's remarkable to me today how many just wonderful relationships I have with mundane people. Uber a lot because I don't drive. Um, I go to doctors a lot because I'm getting old. And almost to a person, every every person I interact with, it's just pleasant. It's enjoyable. And it, I, it's, it's because I don't need anything else out of this moment but to be what it is. And I, I mean, to me, that's remarkable. I say it often, it's such a hard thing to explain. My life is so rich. I don't have any money at all. I'm not, I'm not crying poverty. It's not like I'm rich and, you know, I'm famous. I don't want anything. I can't believe it. And I think you're all getting that idea, too. Out of this moment, what do we want? I want a peaceful and calm mind. I got it. What he said. <laughs> John, you do have a special brain. Oh, what? We're grateful for your brain. <laughs> okay, I am too. But there is really there's nothing special about it. I know. I've been in here a long time. You've <laughs> <laughs> seen it. <laughs> I've seen it's it's uh it's foibles too. So we'll finish with Meta as we always do. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let them, they are mindful not to deceive one another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, 
So with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain this refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, abandons ignorance of four noble truths. Thank you all for a wonderful class. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.